if you have a Bible with you, please turn in it to Titus, the, the little book of Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, chapter 2. If, if you don't have a Bible with you, there are Bibles in these black chair back pockets that you should feel free to grab and borrow. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to, to keep uh, one of those Bibles. We want everyone to have God's Word. Titus is towards the end of the New Testament. It's uh, it's after First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy. If you hit Hebrews, you've gone too far. And if you're using one of these paperback Bibles, it's on page eight fifty seven. Toddlers are interesting people. I have one, so I would know. And they're interesting for a number of reasons, but particularly because they're in a life stage that I would call mobility without intuition, which is they can run and walk and climb, they can move all over, and they can get themselves into situations that they have no way of understanding. And it's because they they don't really understand how the world world works. So kids have no sense of center of gravity, right? So my son climbs up on the back of the couch. He has no way of, of kind of thinking through, well, my head, which is enormous, is way heavier than my feet. And if I lean way over the back of the couch, whoosh, you know, I'm, I'm going down. And kids don't really, they don't understand what a street is. A street to them is just like this giant open space, no obstacles, perfectly level, perfect place to run, right? They don't understand what's happening in the street, the difference between the living room and Walker's Road. A, a toddler at the beach doesn't have a good sense of kind of how to place his feet to prepare for an oncoming wave or any expectation that once the water passes him, it's coming right back from behind to sweep his legs out from under him. He, he doesn't see the connection between the realities of the world, the realities of gravity and traffic laws and fluid dynamics and how he lives his life. And in that sense, toddlers are a lot like the people in the churches on Crete to whom Paul is writing. So the Apostle Paul had gone through Crete, it's the Mediterranean island, kind of to the eastern end, and he'd preached the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and churches had started gathering, gatherings of believers, having fellowship together, benefiting from teaching. Um, And just like elsewhere, elsewhere in the world and, and even today, as Christianity began to take hold, there were people who saw its popularity on the rise and thought, here is an opportunity to make some money. And what they would do was they would just change, they would twist it a little bit. They would change the good news about Jesus And they would set themselves up as the teachers of the real truth. We have the real article. And they would get people to give them money to support their ministry. It was a way of of exercising greed through teaching untruths about Jesus. And so Paul leaves Titus, his friend Titus, to whom he's writing this letter. He left him on Crete to go through the churches and to raise up elders, men who were rooted in the truth, men who knew Jesus well, who could teach what was true, and who could refute the false teachers, who could protect the gospel from false teaching. So we don't know too much about exactly what the false teachers were saying on Crete, but it seems to have involved a kind of strange combination of superstition and immorality. So on the one hand, Paul has to keep telling the people on Crete not to, not to devote themselves to superstition. He tells them not to devote themselves to myths and to traditions, to the commandments of men. 
these just speculations that these teachers apparently were saying there were these traditions, there were these rituals, or there was food you couldn't eat, you shouldn't get married, these rules you had to keep to be pure before God. Not just trusting in Jesus, but extra things you had to do to be pure before God. So on the one hand, there's kind of this superstitious, legalistic element. On the other hand, Paul says to the teachers, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, which seems to indicate that their lives weren't godly lives. They weren't in keeping with who God is. And so there's this sort of superstitious, you've got to do these things to be pure. But on the other hand, God doesn't really care what you do with the rest of your life. You can really, you can kind of let yourself go, and God's okay with that. And it seems like a weird combination, right? That there are some rules that you have to keep perfectly in order to please God, but the rest of your life, God doesn't really care about. It seems like a strange combination, but I think a lot of people today have sort of the same thing operating in their lives. Only it sounds more like this, who they think that in order to really secure God's acceptance, his approval, what I really need to do is I need to always go to church and always read my Bible and always pray and always go to small group, and as long as I do those things, I'm good. And beyond that, God doesn't care what I do on Friday night or Saturday night. He doesn't care how much I drink or where I sleep or where my money goes as long as I do the church things right. And I think all of us can relate to this problem on some level, either one end or the other. So maybe you relate more to the sort of superstitious, legalistic side, where you feel like even though you've trusted in Jesus, there are still things you have to do to maintain God's love. You have to obey him perfectly, or you have to, you have to be consistent in spiritual disciplines. And if you slip up, you have to make it up to God. You have to, you have to kind of get back in his good favor because he's disappointed with you because you let him down that his, his approval of you fluctuates kind of moment by moment based on whether you're obeying him or not. Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum. Maybe if you're honest, you would say there's actually very little connection between what you read in the Bible, what you hear on Sunday mornings, and how the rest of your life goes. There's no overlap between Saturday night and Sunday morning. And God wants us to see in Titus 2 this morning that both of those problems have a common root, that if we're experiencing those things, it's because we haven't really understood God's grace. We're like the toddlers. We're not seeing the connections between the way the world really is and our lives. And so this is why our passage in, this passage is in our Bible. So we're going to look mainly at verses 11 to 14, but I want to read the whole chapter so you can see the argument, Paul's flow of thought. So this is Titus chapter 2. Please follow along as I read. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything 
they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Titus, declare these things. Exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you again weak and needy. We come to you again desperate to be taught by you and to hear from you. God, we need your word for our faith. We need your word for our obedience. We need your word for our joy. And so, Father, as we've already asked you to come, please come now. Please please speak through me. Speak to each one of us through your word. Please help us to live lives that are in awe of grace and rightly responding to it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we need to see three things about grace in this passage. We need to see the intention of grace, the training of grace, and the spread of grace. First, the intention of grace. Paul says in verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So when Christians talk about God's grace, they're talking about God's work for the unworthy. God's acting in love for those who don't deserve it, which is everybody. God made us, all of us, for himself, to love him and trust him and obey him, have fellowship with him, and we've all decided we'd rather go our way. We want to do what we want to do. And though our rebellion against God, every one of us, deserves death, instead, God continues to give us life and health and sunny days and turquoise water, good food to eat, all grace. It's all grace. But that's not what Paul means when he says that the grace of God has appeared. He means something more specific. He means Jesus has come. God has been giving grace to humanity since the beginning, but when Jesus came onto the scene, grace appeared in person. Grace was visible. The grace of God appeared in Jesus, and it says it did something amazing. He says that it, it's bringing salvation for all people. And he doesn't mean every single person. He means all kinds of people, young, old, men, women, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile. Jesus didn't come to bring grace to Western people. He didn't come to bring grace to middle class people. He didn't come to bring grace to religious people. He came to bring salvation for all people who will trust in him. So he came to bring salvation. What do we mean when we say salvation? I think so often we, we just think of it in terms of forgiveness. God lets me off the hook. His grace means I'm not going to go to hell. And that's true, and it's wonderful, but it's not the whole picture. Look at verse 14. It says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So we'll come to that first part about redeeming us from lawlessness in a little bit. But what I want you to see is that the intention of grace isn't just to let us off the hook. It isn't just forgiveness. He says that Jesus gave himself 
to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He died to make something of us, a people for himself, a people who are like him, a people who, are, who love what is good just as he loves what's good. Salvation doesn't just take care of our guilt. Salvation makes us new people. And this is what God has always been after. This is why he made us. God didn't, he didn't create humanity because God really wanted a planet. And then he made the planet and thought, gosh, now I need someone to work it. Like I need, I need people to make my planet nice. He created everything for us. He created us because he wanted a people for his own possession. He wanted Adam and Eve to have fellowship with him, to share his joy, to share his love. He created it to spread his glory a people for his own possession. He, he didn't need humanity. God wasn't lonely before he made us. He wanted us. He wanted a people for his own possession. And after Adam and Eve, after sin came into the world, after we were cut off from God, this is what God has been working towards. He's been working towards gathering to himself a people, a pure people, a people who are like he is. Of course, we need to be forgiven for that to happen, but forgiveness is just the beginning. The intention of grace is to make us godly, to make us like God. So I hope that helps you see what a mistake it is to think that grace means God doesn't care how I live. Well, I'm saved by grace. I'm saved regardless of what I do, therefore I can do whatever I want. It's a mistake. That was the problem on Crete, and it's a problem today. And it can be an easy mistake to make, I think, because... Because grace is true. The Bible tells us, and it's a wonderful truth, God loves us despite what we do. And he accepts us despite what we do through faith in Jesus. Not because we're good, but because Jesus is good. Jesus Jesus came and lived a perfect life. He is the only person who deserved to be called righteous before God. And And we stand condemned. We're all guilty before God. And yet Jesus took what he didn't deserve, our guilt and condemnation, died on the cross, so we could receive what, what we don't deserve, his righteousness before God. And that's all that happens apart from what we do. It is by grace. But that doesn't mean that since we're saved by grace, God doesn't care how we live. It doesn't mean he doesn't care what we do. God doesn't save us because we clean ourselves up. He saves us by grace. But he doesn't, it doesn't mean he doesn't care that we live how he wants us to live. It's because he loves us. It's because he's accepted us that he cares what we do, that it matters to him whether we're a pure people zealous for good works. Part of the problem with humanity is that we want to do things that hurt us. We've acquired a taste for poison. The things we think are going to make us happy, like drinking too much and sleeping around and, and working ourselves to death to get lots of money, those things are actually killing us. They're pulling us away from where God knows all the joy to be. And because God loves us, he wants to set us free. Not just forgive us, but set us free from the things that are killing us and help us to do the things that give us life. God loves us too much to just leave us alone. I mean, what, what would you think of a parent who, upon observing his child reaching up towards the hot stove or opening a, you know, a bottle of bleach would say, well, I just, I love him too much to, to stop him. I just, I want him to do what makes him happy. If that makes him happy, I want him to do it. We would, we would not call that love. That would be incredibly irresponsible. Love means you want what's truly good for someone, not just what they think is going to make them happy. And that's how God loves us. 
because he's made us his children, because he's brought us to himself. So because God loves us, God is unstoppably committed to making us godly. And not only does grace intend to make us godly, grace actually accomplishes it. How? The second aspect of grace we need to see in this passage is the training of grace. Paul says in verse 12, the grace of God appeared training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So this, this, world, tr- this word training, it's used elsewhere in scripture of education, of, of teaching. So the grace, the grace of God teaches us to renounce some things and to live a certain way. It's also used of fathers disciplining their children. So the grace of God, it disciplines us, it corrects us, it turns us back to the way we should go. Just like teachers and parents, grace has a goal in mind. It's got something it's trying to get done. It's trying to make us godly. Grace trains us to be godly. So please don't miss, so many people do, please don't miss the fact that it's, that it's God's grace that trains us. It's God's grace that makes us godly. Not fear of God punishing us if we step out of line. Not guilt for things we've done in our past we feel like we have to make up to God for. Not sheer willpower, but grace. Too many of us think that the Christian life is like the end of the movie Saving Private Ryan. And if you haven't seen it, Tom Hanks is Captain John Miller. He's leading a squad of soldiers uh, after the invasion of Normandy in World War II, and they're looking for one paratrooper, James Ryan, Private James Ryan, who, whose three brothers have all been killed on D-Day, and they're going to send him home. And so one by one, this squad of soldiers looking for this one guy, one by one, they're killed. They give their lives in order to extract him, to set him free. And at the end, even Captain Miller is dying, and he grabs Ryan, and he pulls him close and says, James Earn this. Earn it. And too many people think that Christianity is like that, that Jesus gives his life for us, and now, it's, now we're on our own. Now it's up to us. We've got to make it up to him. We've got to live lives that, that deserve what Jesus did. And that's not how Christianity works. We think, that, we think that God, his approval of us sort of fluctuates day to day and moment to moment based on whether we're earning it or not. That we're saved by grace, but we have to live and maintain God's love by works. I can remember being on a college ministry retreat, and there was like this, you know, campfire at the end, and everyone was sharing things that they were learning. And this, this one freshman stood up, and he said, what I've really been learning is that I need to read my Bible every day, because if I read my Bible, God will bless me. And if I don't read my Bible, God won't bless me. And he wasn't, he wasn't being trained by grace. That poor kid was being trained by fear that God was going to zap him if he didn't read his Bible. And that's not how Christianity works. It's, that's like the superstition that they had on Crete, that if you, if you eat the certain foods and you don't eat these foods and you keep these rituals, then God will bless you. And that's not how grace is. God intends us to be motivated by being sure of his acceptance, by being sure that he loves us and he's brought us to himself through Christ. He wants us to know that we're deeply loved and fully accepted regardless of what we do, that we don't need to fear his condemnation. Here's here's what's going to happen. If you're always afraid that God is going to disown you because you've done something wrong, that God is just going to be done with you, 
you're not going to love him. You're going you're gonna to fear him, not in the good way, and you might even grow to hate him because he's so impossible to please. That's not how God wants us to see him. If we know that his love is so great that he gave his son to give us life, even though we don't deserve it, even when we were still sinners, we're going to love him. And because we love him, we'll want to obey him. And when we want to obey him, we'll be trained by grace. So what, what does grace train us to do? Verse 12 says, Grace trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So it's just like a change of clothes, right? There's something you've got to take off and something you need to put on. You need to put off ungodliness, worldly passions, put on this life that Paul describes. So ungodliness, ungodliness basically means acting as though God isn't there. Living your life as though there is no God, there's no one who calls the shots, there's no one worthy of praise, living as though God is just totally absent. And worldly passions means overpowering desires for things of the world. And when you combine them, you get a very nasty mixture. And here's why. Because we were, we were made with desires, right? Desires are good. God, God gave us desires. He wants us to enjoy eating and enjoy resting. He wants us to enjoy relationships. He wants us to enjoy work. All these things God wants us to enjoy. But our desires are supposed to be governed by our love for God. So because we love God most, even though we desire things at a certain time, we only follow those desires. We only listen to our desires in ways that please God. So we work, which is a good thing, but not so much that we neglect our family. We eat and drink, and we enjoy it, but we don't eat too much. We don't drink too much. We enjoy all the good gifts God gave for marriage inside of marriage. But apart from God's grace, all that stuff goes haywire because all of a sudden we're living as though there is no God. There's no one who tells us what to do. There's no one who's worthy of our obedience. And so the only person we can listen to is our desire. So whatever we feel like doing, we just do. Nothing Nothing governs our desires. We just live however we want to live. So we eat and drink too much. We live to acquire more and more money. We build our lives around leisure. And grace trains us to be done with that. Once we know how much God has loved us, once we understand he's given his son, our response is to be done with that and to live, what it tells us here, self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. So it's like... It's like the solar system, okay? I might have used this illustration before. Like, the problem was the sun of, of God's greatness, the sun of loving God, was supposed to keep all the planets of our desires in place. And, you know, when God is gone, everything just flies out of place. So grace has come to restore God to his rightful place, so everything else goes back into orbit. Everything else finds its orderly place. And that's what self-control is like. It means we're seeing things clearly. We're making decisions based on what's good, what God, what God says, not just what we feel in any given moment. Upright means we treat other people according to love and justice, not according to what they can do for us. Godly is the opposite of ungodliness. It means we live as though God's really there, as though he's great and good and holy and loving, and we live in light of his presence. And when we do that, when we have those kinds of lives, will be a people purified for his own possession, a people zealous for good works. But how does it actually work? How does grace make us those kinds of people? I just want to name a few ways from the passage. 
First, grace helps us to be godly because it breaks the power of sin over us. Look at verse 14. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. If you were here last week, we talked about this, this amazing word from the Bible, which is ransom, that, that Jesus gave his life as a payment to set us free, not just free from death, not just free from hell, but free from sin, free to actually obey God. And this word here, redeem, is the verb form of the same word. Jesus came to set us free from lawlessness, to set us free from disobedience, to actually be able to obey God. He broke the power of sin over us. Even more than that, God sent his spirit into our hearts to actually give us love for God, to help us to respond to God from inside. So when we remember that Jesus has freed us from the power of sin, that we don't have to sin even when we want to, we're being trained by grace to be godly. What else? Secondly, grace gives us a better hope. Look at verse 13. He says that we live lives waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So here's the natural tendency of humanity. The natural tendency of humanity is to live for whatever makes you happy right now, whatever makes me happy in this moment. Because what else is there except for being happy right now? But grace tells us that Jesus is coming. And when Jesus comes, he's going to rid the world of evil and sadness and death forever. And when he comes, everyone who's trusted in him will become like him in a moment, full of his joy, full of his glory. And we're going to live in the world forever in the happiness, the unimaginable happiness for which we were made. That's what grace gives us. So we don't, we don't have to live for what makes me happy right now because we know that the ultimate joy is coming with Jesus. We can deny ourselves things that we think will make us happy in the moment because we know there's something better that Jesus brings. And so when we do that, when we know that our true joy isn't in making ourselves feel good right now, we'll be trained by grace to be godly. Finally, grace reveals the loving face of God. There's, this, there's a phrase in verse 13 that is amazing, and I wonder if you saw it. The phrase is, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what Paul says there in the original language makes it clear, Paul isn't talking about two people. He's not saying our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's saying there's this one person, Jesus, who is our great God and Savior. Jesus is God. And, and so without grace, apart from grace, if all we knew of God was his law, was his commandments, we would know that he's holy. We would know that he wants us to be holy. We would know that you get in a lot of trouble if you're not holy, but we wouldn't know his grace. But grace teaches us that the face of God is the face of a savior, is the face of someone who laid down his life in our place. That's who God is. God gave his life to make us holy. And so we don't have to worry that God is constantly watching for us to slip up. He's like glowering over us, just daring us to move. The face of God is the face of a loving Savior. And sometimes his love takes the form of circumstances that are painful, circumstances that, that make us uncomfortable because he, he wants to turn us into good ways. But we never have to worry about his love because his love has been proved in sending his son. He never relates to us in anger again. 
And when we believe that, when we see that as true, we're going to love him in response and we're going to be trained by grace. So grace, not law, not fear, not guilt, is what over time is going to make us truly godly, truly like God. And being trained by grace, it still takes effort. It still takes work. It's hard to renounce ungodliness and to live a self-controlled life, but it's so different when it's not because you're cringing and afraid that God's going to zap you. When you're responding to his love, when you're responding to his kindness, responding to him having sent his son on your behalf, knowing that you're secure in his love. So we've seen the intention of grace and the training of grace. And there's one more aspect of grace we need to see. What effect does our being trained by grace have on others? So third and finally, the spread of grace. One of the reasons that I read the whole passage, starting from verse 1, is because I wanted you to see how the passage moves. It starts, in a lot of Paul's letters, he starts off with the truth. He starts off by telling things that are true of God, and then he says, therefore, in light of all those things, live a certain way. But in Titus 2, he flips it, and he starts off by giving a lot of commands. He gives commands to how older men are to live, and older women, and younger women, and younger men, and Titus, and even slaves. And then, the part that we looked at, verses 11 to 14, is where he gives the truth about grace on which everything else stands. So why should we live godly lives? Because grace has appeared, because grace wants to make us godly, because grace trains us to become more like God. And there's one more reason that Paul has in verses 1 to 10 for why why we should live godly lives trained by grace. And he says it three times in slightly different ways. So first look at verse 5. He says, Younger women should be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Here's why. That the word of God may not be reviled. And then verse 7. Show yourself, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Here's why. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And finally, verse 10. Bond servants are to be not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Three times Paul tells them that the way that they live, whether their lives are marked by godliness or not, the way they live affects how others receive the good news about the grace of God in Christ. Negatively, he says, if if they don't live godly lives, if they don't obey his commands, he says it gives people a reason to revile the gospel, to speak evil of the preachers of the gospel. That, That seeing Christians live lives that look just like the world give people a reason not to listen to what they have to say. And how many times when you've been trying to talk about Jesus with a relative or a friend or a coworker, and the thing they bring up is, but what about all the bad Christians? What about the people that I've known that have mistreated me? What about the Crusades and all the bad things that have happened in history? That lives that aren't marked by godliness give people a reason not to listen to what we have to say about the gospel. People have a right to expect our lives to line up with what we say, right? It's just common sense. If someone, if someone came into your office at work and they said, very calmly, I just want you to know that there's a fire on the first floor and the whole building's going to go up, everyone needs to get out, and then they walk back to their desk and just kind of go back to work, you would think there's a huge disconnect between what they're saying and how they're living. I'm not sure I can trust 
what he just said. Or if someone tells you that their life has been changed, turned upside down by exercise and a certain diet, they want to get together with you and talk about the difference it can make in your life, and you know that they eat donuts for breakfast every day, they haven't run for six months, you would think, I'm not so sure I want to put my time into that. And if someone says to you, if someone says to you, disobedience to God is so awful that God's son had to die to make it right, but then you saw them living in ways that you knew the Bible condemned, what would you think about what they had to say? I mean, would you be interested at all? Can you imagine someone coming up to you and saying, I just, I just really want to know more about these beliefs you have that make no difference in your life. I, I see them making no difference, and I would love to know more about that. That never happens. That never happens. That God intends there to be a link between what we say we believe and how we live. And we, we don't have to be perfect, right? God God didn't save us because we were good. He didn't save us because we obeyed. He saved us by grace. We're all awful sinners. But if grace intends to make us godly, and if grace really trains us, then we should be changing. Not perfect, but we should be different than the rest of the world. And if people don't see anything different in our lives, why should they believe what we have to say about Jesus? I have what I hope is a godly concern for sunrise in this area. I love that we love grace. I love that on Sunday mornings we celebrate that we're, we're accepted through Christ, not because of anything we've done. I don't want to change any of that. But I worry that sometimes, for some of us, the fact that we're saved by grace becomes a reason not to change, an excuse to live just like everybody else does, rather than the motivation to become more like God. Does, does the knowledge of all that God has done for you in sending his son and bringing you to himself, does it change the way you spend your Friday night? Does it change who you date or where you sleep, how much you drink? Does it change how you treat your wife? Does it change how you treat your kids? Does it change your attitude at work? Is your life different because of what you believe about grace? If not, your life may be an obstacle to your friends coming to trust in Jesus. Your friends may like you better if you're just like they are, but they're not going to be in the least intrigued in the gospel. So that's the negative way of saying it. But the positive way of saying it that he says in verse 10 is that if we live lives that are godly, that are shaped by grace, that we can actually adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. We can adorn the gospel. And here's how to think about adorn. Here's what it means to adorn. You guys have all observed the difference that a certain necklace or a certain earrings can make in really bringing out the color in someone's eyes, right? Or how a new pair of glasses or a new haircut can cause you to see someone in a fresh way. Like their, their beauty strikes you. And the beauty was there all along, but these, these, uh, these pieces of jewelry and the glasses, the haircut, they adorn the beauty. They draw attention to it. They show it. And, and hold it out. And that's how our lives can be for the gospel. God's grace is already beautiful. It is already beautiful that God sent his son to die in our place, that God makes sinners his children. That's already beautiful, but godly lives adorn the gospel. They point to grace. They're like neon arrows that say, there's something here. Look, check this out. There's real power here to make you different than you are. As we grow in godliness, we become walking advertisements for God's grace. So grace 
spreads to others through godliness. It starts when one person experiences God's grace. He goes from alienated from God, living for himself, to reconciled to God, living for God. He loses his taste for partying. Instead of complaining about his job, always talking about himself, he's asking questions, asking how people are, really caring about their lives. He laughs more easily at himself. He's content with what he has. He begins to be more generous with his money. And his friends think, I don't know what's going on here, and I'm not even sure that I like it. But it's real. Something is really changing him. And so they ask him, what's going on in your life? What, why are you changing? And he says, Jesus is changing me. Jesus is changing me. And most of them, that's all they want to hear. They walk away. But, but one wants to hear more. And so he and she start talking about Jesus, and then she trusts the gospel, and then she's changed by grace, and her friends start to notice something new in her life. And that's the cycle God intends, that grace makes godliness possible, and godliness makes grace attractive. And so it spreads to more and more people. So here's what you can't miss from this passage. True grace produces true godliness. If you're not growing in godliness, then you're not experiencing God's grace the way that you should be, the way that he intends you to. And if you're beginning to really understand grace, godliness is going to follow. So, people of Sunrise, are you being trained by grace? Do you see in your life a growing presence of self-control, being able to say no to desires in order to say yes to God? Are your relationships being more marked by serving other people rather than looking for them to serve you? Is God looming larger in your life? Are you more aware of his greatness and his holiness and his love? Are you responding to him? If not, is it possible you're trying to grow through superstition, through fear, through just trying to keep all the commandments and keep God off your back rather than responding to his grace? Do you, do you fear that God's love for you fluctuates during the day based on what you're thinking about or what you've just done or, or what you intend to do? If so, then you need to hear about God's grace again this morning that everyone who trusts in Jesus is righteous, completely righteous in God's sight. And he never again finds fault. He never again has wrath against them. His love compels him to give us everything we need to be godly. God intends our assurance of his love, our assurance of his acceptance to motivate us to live godly lives as we wait for Jesus to come. Or if you're not growing, is it possible you're on the other side of things and you're not, you're not becoming pure, you're not renouncing ungodliness because you never intended to. You never intended to change. You thought that God's grace just meant you could just go on living the way you always did except this time with no hell. If so, then you need to hear about God's grace again this morning, that God's grace intends nothing less than your purity, your wholeness, your becoming like him. If you've been resisting God making you more like himself, resist no longer. He means it for your joy. And if you have no desire to please God at all, then it may be that you've never trusted in the gospel of grace to begin with, and God has really good news for you. Maybe you believe and you rejoice that God accepts you and changes you by grace, not by your effort, and you really do want to grow, and you still don't see yourself growing the way that you want to. And so in your case, maybe it's that you're not making use of all the ways God has, has designed to bring his grace into our lives. God pours grace into our lives through his word, through reading it and being taught it. 
through singing together, through praying alone and with others, through the Lord's Supper, through serving one another, through godly conversation about what God's doing in our lives. These are like faucets of grace. It's plumbing, bringing God's grace into your life. Are the faucets open? Are you, are you making use of all the means God has intended to pour himself into your life? When we deeply experience God's grace and we're being changed into his likeness, God is going to use us individually and as a church to draw others to himself. Let's pray that he will. Our Father, we thank you again for your grace. Um, It is so amazing, God, to think that you loved us before the world began, that you, you desired us, even when we were sinners, to become your children to belong to you forever. You sent your son, your precious, spotless son, into the world to suffer in our place so that we could, we could be with you forever. And God, your love is so great that you don't leave us alone, but you want to make us godly. You want to make us as full of joy, as full of zeal for what is good as you are. God, have your way with us. Please help us to see your grace clearly, to be so sure of your love, so sure of your goodness, so sure of your acceptance, that we gladly turn to you in obedience, gladly turn to you in love, and live the lives you made us to live. And please use us, God, use us as a church to draw our friends and our neighbors and our relatives, our co-workers, to experience your grace as well. God, help us to sing to you now with full hearts, hearts full of the knowledge of grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.